was Tommy James and the Shondells dragging the line. You know, what's not to love about Tommy James and the Shondells? The reason um, this podcast, which is 127, is entitled Hotel Taft relates directly to that. And I want to talk about something that's very much in my mind today, um, but always in the context of something that is both um, excavatory archaeological, and also absurd. And that's, in a way, the following story, which really tells the whole truth of life, in a sense, which is when Tommy James, who wrote and recorded, as you know, Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion, and I think we're alone now, and Mirage and Dragon the Line, as we've just heard, and Christian of the World, one of his remarkable later songs, etc., he was in the studio to record, I believe it was in New York City, the uh, song Moni Moni. We know it is that, but he tells the story, Tommy James does, of going into the studio fairly high up in a uh, recording building somewhere and um, 
preparing to do it. And he came in with the music in his mind, but not the words. He had no words for what would become Moni Moni. So he looked out the window uh, to his left and saw the letters in a neon sign, M-O-N-Y, Metropolitan of New York. And he said, got it. And he then got the refrain and the song, and we know it as Moni Moni. However, Tommy James said later, had I looked to my right, the song would have been called Hotel Taft. Now, um, dragging the line in this podcast, which is called Hotel Taft, is really a marvelous um, demonstration and uh, summary parable of the power of the truth to create elation, joy, and hope. The power of the truth in concrete terms, which is always initially a dragging of the line. Consider yourself a um, lake like that great, um, what was it called, Fear in the Night? Now, the one with Susan Strasberg, uh, the great hammer horror kind of takeoff of Psycho, where they're dragging a lake at the beginning looking for a body, and they find one. And you're dragging the bottom of the lake to find something that's there and cannot be seen unless you go way down with your divers or whatever equipment you have, like uh, Carnival of Souls. And... Um, Dragging the line is what really has to happen in life in order to come to the elation of truth in the light of hope. And that's really what I wanted to talk about. Now, I wanted to start by um, reading a brief, but um, to my way of thinking, very astute interior monologue that Gallsworthy places in the mouth of his heroine Denny Cheryl in the third of his third trilogy of novels, the last book he wrote. And this is excavatory and archaeological, and this um, sets the stage for actually the deliverance of Denny Cheryl in the course of this, to my way of thinking, very... Um, penetrating and uh, deep work of literature. And um, this is how Dinny reacts when she receives word of uh, the death of the man um, she loves. And uh, now let me find it. The um, Here it is. It's not bad to take your time in something. And uh, she has just found out, this is not near the end, this is in the last third of the novel, at the beginning of the last third, that her true love, Wilfred Desert, has perished out in Ceylon, or in Thailand, actually, and she's completely shocked and utterly and completely 
totally a person for whom the plug has been pulled out of the bathtub and the chair has been pulled out of the high wire act and she is in absolute freefall. And dragging the line, um, Galsworthy drags the line because he goes way into her soul. And uh, I'm just uh, going to uh, read it. Don't grieve, said Stack. Stack is uh, Mr. Desert's um, butler who lives in, or man, and lives in London, who's just told her on the street of the death of this true love. Don't grieve. Oh, miss. And here we go. Page 173 of One More River. Dinny laid her fingers on his glove, gave it a little pull, and walked swiftly on. Don't grieve. Sleet was falling now. She raised her face to feel the tingling touch of those small flakes. No more dead to her than he had already been. But dead, away, over there, utterly far. Lying in the earth by the river that had drowned him in forest silence where no one would ever see his grave, every memory she had of him came to life with an intensity that seemed to take all strength from her limbs so that she nearly collapsed in the snowy street. She stood for a minute with her gloved hand on the railing of a house. An evening postman stopped and looked round at her. Perhaps some tiny flame of hope that some day he would come back had flickered deep down within her. Perhaps only the snowy cold was creeping into her bones, but she felt deadly and numb. She reached Mount Street, that is, where she is staying, at last, her aunt and uncle's house, and let herself in, and there came a sudden horror of betraying that anything had happened to awaken pity for her, interest in her, any sort of feeling. And this beset her, and she fled to a room. What was it to anyone but her? And pride so moved within her that even her heart felt cold as a stone. A hot bath revived her a little. She dressed for dinner early and went down. The evening was one of silences more tolerable than the spasmodic spurts of conversation. Dinny felt ill. When she went up to bed, her aunt came to her room. Dinny, you look like a ghost. I got chilled, Auntie. Lawyers do. I brought you a posset. Ah, I've always longed to know what a posset is. Well, drink it. Dinny drank and gasped, frightfully strong. Yes, your uncle made it. Michael rang up. That's her husband. And taking the glass, Lady Mont bent forward and kissed her cheek. That's all, she said. Now go to bed or you'll be ill. Denny smiled. I'm not going to be ill. But she was ill, the beginning of the next chapter. And for a month in her conventual room at Condeford, often wished she were dead and done with. Now, that's a, a brief example of the kind of inner um, discussion, which in this case ends with a kind of quashing of the uh, great um, tragedy of Denny's life, or a kind of suppression that um, is uh, uh, causes, as we know, the uh, complete uh, and total um, uh, depression and paralysis and uh, really death of the of the of the hope. And um, later on, uh, she will have a further blow. And this blow will find her center over the edge where she takes her, what I regard as a cousinsian walk to the Round Pond in Kensington Gardens and walks by the W.H. Hudson Memorial in Hyde Park. And uh, she so grieves for her own identification with Rima, the heroine of Green Mansions, that she begins to recover. 
And um, the story really is, if you read uh, One More River, which is the American edition, also known in the English edition as Across the River, you'll, uh, you'll see the beginnings of hope in the devastation of the self. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit more in specifically Christian terms, because it occurs to me that um, the power of what um, Christ said to Nicodemus is something that um, is uh, uh, at the very heart of, um, of, of, of truth and life and hope for really the entire human organism. And that is the um, exchange in uh, St. John where uh, Christ says to um, Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's talk about this in real terms, or shall I say in in uh, kind of terms that are uh, removed from words, but are looking at it as it actually is. It's a word really from which many people hide all their lives. And in fact, they often come to church if they go to church to sort of further dig themselves into a kind of place of hiding to further deepen the trench of um, denial or um, the trench of deception. Uh, whereas in fact, they're digging the trench absolutely towards the only thing that will open them up open anyone up. And that is the conviction that Jesus had that in order to begin again, you have to die. And I've said it often, but it's practical. The objection always used to came uh, to come in old days, Paul, your preaching is down because you seem to indicate that only through suffering and loss can one find a way forward. And I just resent that, people would say. I, surely there are ways to pull it off gradually, or there are ways to pull it off you know, by increments, or there are ways to sort of move forward in a more positive view. It sounds awfully negative. And uh, what I would say today is that, yes, it could sound negative. It could be kind of a um, kind of a um, ideological form of the glass is half empty or a depressive affect. I'm willing to admit that even in myself, but I would say now that the secret of the kingdom is in fact still this, because it's you see it in all the other great religions. You see it in every religion that you can name that the way forward is the death of the kind of grasping self, what is sometimes called the false self, or I'm perfectly glad to use the word ego that the grasping, possessive, defensive, holding on kind of uh, self that doesn't want to let go self, that that self really has to let go because that self, it cannot incrementally find an answer which by definition um, uh, un, um, releases its hold and pries away those tightly grasped fingers. Uh, it absolutely has to go completely. So to the extent that we can imagine it in our own experience, that the grasping, holding on to defensive, I want to live, you know, Susan Hayward, isn't that a, I want to live that movie, not Susan Hayward, but the movie character, you know, I want to, I, I refuse, you know, I will go, I will not go quietly into that dark night. That self has to die because it does in any event. I mean, it's not anything we can control. We are all going to have our fingers pried away from the pole of life. We are pole dancers who cannot carry on. We will be knocked off our perch. And um, this is uh, what Jesus was saying in common with 
great wisdom, but he said it so well. You can't uh, be born to the new if you haven't died to the old. And that's not a chronological thing, although it often uh, works itself out in time. That is an actual death of uh, of the grasping. And it hits you in the strangest times. Um, there's a uh, There's a kind of elation when it actually gets... Uh, through, I'm uh, I'm thinking of a character in Waltari. Now, Waltari is an interesting case. I haven't really done a podcast on him, and I don't think I'm going to, but I might. I, I've now read one, two, three, four, four and a half in total. Five of uh, of uh, Waltari's uh, the Finnish um, writers' uh, historical novels, and they're actually once you sort of get the rhythm of it, they're all uh, basically. Um, Journeys of self-discovery in which uh, the main character is disillusioned. Uh, the Egyptian is the um, is the most famous one, but in the Wanderer, Michael Hakim Hakluta, whatever his name is, Hakluit, he's from Finland. He is disillusioned uh, one by one by one by one, and in the other novels, uh, which I could name you, and right into his uh, two sort of Christian novels uh, where. Um, Marcus uh, Mesencius Manilianus is a world-weary character, sort of a film noir world-weary character, like, uh, you know, the, the, the Robert Ryan detective in On Dangerous Ground with, uh, is it Ida Lupino, that brilliant film noir where he finds the, he's been, he's been thrown out of the police force for all practical purposes or demoted because of bad uh, procedure, and uh, he has to find himself. Now, what causes this to happen? This is what's so interesting. In each of these novels, which are very leisurely, these long, sort of picaresque, that's not quite the right word, but they're sort of quest novels of young men who become old men in the course of the novel. They all go from sort of age 10 to age uh, 40 or even older, 45 or 50, in the case of Sinue, the Egyptian. And what causes them to finally, you, you see it, there's a beautiful skein of, uh, of development because the man goes uh, through many, many terrible experiences, but usually there's one of these experiences which finally does it, which finally puts him on the path. In the Egyptian, it's... Uh, the uh, the trouble that he gets uh, into again and again and again and again and again with the same courtesan who really is uh, rejecting him. And only when he finally is completely rejected by her does he have his meltdown and he goes down into the depths of a nervous breakdown. But it takes about four or five times. The same could be said, by the way, of Somerset Maugham's uh, hero. Is it Philip Carey in... Um, and if you in bondage, you know, you just keep seeing him returning, returning, returning. But finally, it's the rejection of the woman that gets him. And in the in the uh, very long but wonderful novel of Islam and Christianity in the 16th century entitled The uh, Adventurer and then the sequel, The Wanderer, Michael Hakim is... Um, is, has terrible disillusioned experiences. He sees death, disease, and his own near death and often disease and his loss of so many people all around him. And yet that's not what finally gets through. What finally gets to him ultimately is the betrayal of the woman he loves, the betrayal and the part of the woman he loves uh, against him, which is extreme and complete and rather tawdry and quite every day involving simply another man and a pregnancy. And that's finally the Battle of Lepanto, the Battle of Vienna, uh, unbelievable, tragic historical developments, the Peasants' War, in which he's disillusioned about many things, uh, religion especially. He finally has gotten to, by virtue of the... Um, 
betrayal of one single person in his late 30s. So this is why also you see when um, uh, Nicodemus in Waltari's novel about Christ, The Secret of the Kingdom, says that you must be born again, the rather um, sort of traveling philosophical inquirer, Marcus, who's a rich young Roman, <clears throat> as it turns out, but he has a lot of... Uh, um, disillusionment already on. He's very open to this. He's desperate to find out if there's something else on the other side of his disillusionment. And when he hears uh, the words, um, uh, you must be born again, he realizes instantly their acuity. Absolutely instantly. I often feel, you know, that we are so lost to these great truths because of the, the very superficial attacks on Christianity and the sort of journalistic understanding that Christianity is a belief system, which I know the church has allowed itself to sort of be portrayed as and actually has often come across that way. So it's in many ways the church's fault, Christianity or Christians' fault, that people see it this way, but not entirely. People want to see it that way. Uh, deep down, take away all the nonsense, and there's plenty of it. Serum blue, you know, fashion, uh, changing ideas, uh, you name it. Um, take away it all, and there is a very powerful transaction being related here that uh, this uh, false uh, hold of life uh, needs to be um, released. And therein lies it. Kerouac said it very well in some of the Dharma, which I really recommend. I think it's an amazing book. And there's almost no page on it that doesn't have something. You, I've often thought, in addition to my Joe Meek Christian calendar, which is another story, it's a project on the side that I could do a, um, an a, a everyday devotional of famous rock and roll second rank top 20 singles. That's another project. But uh, um, the... Uh, uh, what I was uh, going to say, I've completely forgotten, but that, I think, hopefully makes me human. Oh, I know what it was. I was going to do a 365 days a year calendar with Jack Kerouac, drawing on some of the Dharma, because the book is so uh, inspired. And it's as inspired in ways as Galsworthy is in more edited. It's an unedited. You could, you could cut it because it's quite repetitive in some places, but it's really, there's nothing in it that isn't interesting and much that's inspired. And one of the things he says is, um, I think it's in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, putative, i.e. He, he wrote an idealized Nobel Prize acceptance speech that he, he penned, as it were, in Greenville, Mississippi. And he said, um, he said in his uh, idealized uh, Nobel, this is what I would say, he said, we were born into this world to get out of it. And when you read that, you say, oh my gosh, that's, can't that be true? Well, at a very uh, powerful sense, that's what it means when he says, unless a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Is there any difference? I mean, we put down Kerouac and we, we privilege John's gospel, and there are very good reasons for that in general, but can we privilege that particular deep universal truth that St. John heard the Lord say when the Lord said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God? Is there any difference between um, uh, that and Kerouac's statement, which is by no means any less uh, pessimistic or um, all-seeing than uh, we were born into this world in order to escape from it or to get out of it. What, what is the difference? 
Is there any real difference? And is that a downer or is that simply an expression of the truth of the tragic case of living? I always quoted him, you know, old Bishop Dunn, whom I knew as a little boy in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral. And his word, life is tragic, his last words. I'm sure he would have added that, but God is not malign. And this is another thing where the sort of new atheists, as I've often wanted to say, are are off. They're so angry, and I understand that, but they're still so angry that you, whenever you're that angry, you can't see what's in front of you. And uh, in actual fact, my experience personally is that if you stop and wait... God is a good God. And this is Waltari's position in all his novels, including the extremely brilliant and the best one, in my view, is the Egyptian. He's extremely world-weary hero who nevertheless finds um, a deep truth. So, um, you know, there's kind of an elation here. I think at one point um, in, uh, let me see, it's in... uh, let me see if I can get this for you. Yes, here it is uh, from um, The Wanderer, page 23. Uh, Michael has just uh, denied his faith and uh, and uh, is in process of becoming, from a Christian, a Muslim. Now the book uh, takes another 300 pages to play that one out. But um, listen uh, to this uh, here. Um, He is uh, suffering, and uh, he uh, says um, he hears an accuser inside himself. Uh, For the first time, he writes, in my life at the age of 25, having escaped many mortal perils, I had been confronted with a clear-cut choice which allowed no evasion. I had made my decision, and now I stood face to face with myself and examined my heart." Michael of Abo in faraway Finland, who are you? Should I not abhor you, shun you, hate you with a bitter hatred? Whatever your intentions, you have done much that was bad, but worst of all, what you did today, for which there is no forgiveness. I sobbed as I sought to defend myself, but my relentless accuser answered me, Think, Michael, and look truth in the eye. My terrors were increased, and I stared into the darkness, and I asked, Who are you? Which of us is the true Michael? You who accuse me, or I who breathe and live, and despite my anguish, secretly rejoice in every breath. I confess in my most heartfelt penitence, my deepest sorrows and my bitterest trials, disappointments and hard-won lessons. They poured like water off a duck's back. But now, now that I look you in the eye, you unknown Michael, I see that it is from you that I have fled. He continues, page 24, I had never made a truer confession than this. I faced myself honestly to be stricken at what I saw, for it was a void, but my accuser was not satisfied. And then uh, he, uh, the accuser says, you are right. I lost nothing when I denied my faith. For me, there was not faith equal at that time to a grain of mustard seed. I would rather bite off my tongue than admit that my whole life has been a lie, to admit this to myself, for what is left of me then? When I had said these words, let me repeat that. Until today, my whole life has been a lie, says Michael to his inward accuser. But I would rather bite my tongue off than admit this, even to myself. For what is left of me then? When I had said these words, I felt for the first time a hint of peace in my soul. The stern judge within me said more gently, Now at last we have reached the kernel of the matter, my boy. But let us go get a step further, if we can bear to do it. Perhaps, after all, we can be friends. Look into yourself, Michael, and confess in your heart... Are you really as unhappy as you make out? 
When he had said this, I looked again into that inner emptiness of mine and marveled to feel a dim, uncertain, yet most glorious happiness in my soul. It was a happiness in the void because I had searched myself, cleansed myself, and was preparing now to begin again from the beginning. And so I answered meekly, don't worry, listener, this is almost over. You are right, unknown man within me. Now that you have crushed and ground me to powder, I am no longer so very unhappy. In fact, I have never known such spiritual joy before or even thought it possible. Well, um, that uh, very, um, I think, encouraging passage in The Wanderer by Waltari sums up really the purpose of this cast because when you are able to uh, see the absolute uh, pennilessness and poverty-strickenness of this tremendously defensive accused self who lives within all of us and really look at this straw man, this this uh, fake, and uh, see him for what he is, which is a thing of, uh, of shadows and tatters and togs and uh, see him for what he really is, sort of fluttering, then you have this enormous contact with that which is really underlying it all, which in my opinion is God, the presence of God. Uh, And then there's, uh, when you're in contact with that, with him, uh, with the divine mood, to quote Galsworthy, then then there's joy and there's incredible elation. And it is for that reason that I close uh, this uh, podcast, which was entitled Hotel Taft, with one of my favorite Christmas carols. Uh, It was, um, I believe we associate the tune with Mendelssohn, do we not? Uh, And certainly the lyrics with Charles Wesley in the um, last third of the 18th century. Thank you very, very much. And I really hope that we could all take up residence with Tommy Janes in the Taft.